Hey everybody. So a few weeks back, I was interviewed by the Cup of Nurses podcast. I really enjoyed talking with Matt and Peter and am so happy with how the podcast turned out. I feel like they gave me a chance to really share my heart for supporting nurses and the opportunity to talk about some topics I'm really passionate about. For those of you that don't follow the Cup of Nurses podcast, I have put a link in the show description so you can check out more of their episodes. They were gracious enough to share the audio file of our interview together, so that is what you're about to hear in this bonus episode is the conversation between me, Peter, and Matt. I hope you enjoy it. And speaking of, if you enjoyed this podcast, Rapid Response RN, if it's been helpful to you as a nurse, could you take a moment to rate this show or write a quick review? You know, I started this podcast with the goal of helping nurses feel more confident and competent when responding to emergencies. But the way the algorithm is set up, the more reviews a podcast has, the more the podcast platform will bring it to the top of people's search for nursing content. So if you want to help more nurses find the Rapid Response RN and help me grow my show, drop a review. It would mean the world to me. Thank you in advance for supporting my podcast, and I can't wait to hear your feedback. All right. What you're about to hear is episode 175 of the Cup of Nurses podcast called What is a Rapid Response Nurse? So I want to remind nurses to be gracious with themselves. If you freeze, that's okay. You're not a bad nurse. You're a really good nurse that really cares about this patient and recognizes the emergency. But you do have to take the effort to be like, okay, I'm feeling this. I'm feeling this tachycardia. I'm feeling my hands sweating. I feel short of breath. What is happening right now? It's not incapacitating me. It's not hindering me. I'm actually about to be the best nurse for this Ooh, patient. Oh, I gotta go. I've been working, told them, please don't hit my phone. I'm in my zone, bro. Just leave me alone. Was on the road, but I swear I'm coming home. Now the drinks on me, I think we need a toast. See, I did it for me. Now my old friends calling, told them nothing's for free. Told me time is money, dog. Swear I paid on my fees. I was starving for this day. Now my family can't eat. Hey, everyone. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Cup of Nurses show. We are your hosts, Peter and Matt, two nurses on a mission to change this world one conversation at a time. So let's jump right into it. If you find value in this show and want to join us on this mission, please share and review the show. It would mean absolutely everything to us. You can find us on cupofnurses.com for the latest info, merch releases, and all the updates on what we're up to. For our lifestyle podcast, you can check out wearefrontlinewarriors.com. In this episode, we would like to introduce you to Sarah Lorenzini. Sarah is a rapid response nurse, educator, and podcast host who teaches nurses how to respond to emergencies. She is passionate about empowering nurses with confidence and competence to advocate for their patients. We talk about the roles of a rapid response nurse and how to properly deal with emergent situations. Sarah, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for your time. Can you give us a little bit about your background and nursing experience? Yeah, sure. So I started as a nurse in 2004 uh, in the ER. I actually went to nursing school with the intention of being a pediatric nurse or like labor and delivery, but I got a job in the ER nursing school and surprisingly, I fell in love with taking care of patients in crisis. Mm. Uh, I was not expecting to be ER nurse. In fact, I applied to labor and delivery as a nurse tech and they didn't even call me back. I was so disappointed, but it happened for a reason because I was meant to be in the ER. I loved it so much. Uh, I did ER nursing for about eight years. 
I was the charge nurse and the preceptor and did a lot of education, really enjoyed educating, really loved having um, preceptees. And so I went back to school, grad school, to be a nursing educator. And while I was in grad school, I went and worked in the cardiac ICU because I knew there was more that I could learn outside of ER nursing. I wanted to take care of the patients with the LVADs and the impellas and the balloon pumps and all the open heart surgeries and transplant. That just fascinated me. So I worked cardiac ICU for a couple of years. Um, and then I was asked to be on the rapid response team of that hospital. So I did rapid response for a while. And rapid response is great. Honestly, it is a mix of ER and ICU nursing kind of into one role. So I, I really took to that pretty easily. I finally graduated, got my master's in nursing education. I worked as a nursing professor for one year <laughs> and I loved the students. I loved it so much, but I still just had this drive to be at the bedside, to be saving patients' lives. Um, making PowerPoints is really hard. I mean, I can do it, but like doing the whole educator life, I wasn't quite ready for that. I'll probably end up there whenever I'm older, but right now I really miss the bedside. Then I got offered to be the ER nurse educator. So I was an ER nurse educator for a while and then COVID hit and my heart wanted to be back at the bedside. Like I couldn't teach any more donning and doffing of PPE and I, <laughs> I just wanted to be with the patients. And so the hospital that I work at now, um, before we didn't have a dedicated rapid response team. Like if a rapid response was called, they would send the ICU charge nurse or the CVU charge nurse. And like the whole team would kind of come together. Um, but I went to the leadership of the hospital and said, listen, y'all need a dedicated rapid response team. COVID is hard. We can't be pulling these ICU CVU charge nurses away from the bedside, away from their team. I I'd like to start a team. And so they gave me <laughs> the ability to do that. So I started the rapid response team in my hospital. I've had the privilege to pick out all of my favorite nurses from the whole hospital to be a part of my team. Um, and I, man, it is truly a dream job because I get to do education, lots of education, which I enjoy doing. Um, I get to be like an ER nurse and like jump in and figure out what's going on and like the, the, the rapid response element. But there's also the critical care aspect of titrating drips and analyzing and trying to figure out the labs and, you know, the kind of like mulling over all the hemodynamics. I, I do that as well. So really it's all my favorite things in a one job. I'm just really grateful to be in this spot of my career. So Sarah, you mentioned a lot about team building, building a rapid response team. What kind of nurses do you look for? Or do you look for specific characteristics in a nurse? How do you find good nurses to be rapid response nurses? It's a good question. It's actually a really hard position to fill. You think like, Lots of people would be candidates. And while a lot of nurses meet the requirements, I'm really picky with who I hire. Um, so obviously they have to have critical care experience. Uh, we require three years of either ER or ICU. Most of my team actually has both. Um, they have to have their CCRN or CEN, so their certification, their specialty. Um, and those things are like minimum. But really what I'm looking for is a certain personality type. So a lot of critical care nurses, they're, they know they're the best. They know that they like have a lot of knowledge, they bring a lot to the table, but if you bring in that um, approach, like come riding in on your high horse, people are not gonna be as responsive to you, nor will they want to call you because they're afraid you're gonna be condescending or make them feel stupid and nobody wants that. And so what I look for is nurses that have been preceptors, that like teaching, that like coming alongside other nurses and supporting them. Um, people who are generally positive, that aren't gonna be like bringing the whole team down. Someone who's able to lead a debrief after a code and somehow swing in a way that's gonna be positive and not just like, you did this wrong, you did this wrong, you did this wrong. So 
I, it really is a certain personality. So that nurse on your unit that's like pretty positive, team player, go-getter, is able to like bring the group together, tends to be like nurturing, supportive. That's the personality I look for. I don't care if you like the smartest, the most amazing, the most experienced nurse in the hospital. If you're rude to people or you can't coordinate a team effort, that's not how I'm looking for. It really is personality as much as it is clinical aptitude. I like how you mentioned that because when I first started nursing, I was a med surgeon. I called the rapid and the rapid rapid response nurse came in. She had those character traits where everybody was freaking out in a sense. She remained very calm, composure, asked the question of what's going on, and she started troubleshooting the patient before the the resident got in there. And, and sometimes the main nurse will, you know, she'll point out to the main nurse, hey, what's going on? Talk to the doctor. And she's coordinated everything. And I was, that's one of the moments that inspired me to also join the ICU because I'm like, wow, that's that's awesome that someone has this ability to be composed, has a poker face, and just understands what's going on with the patient. So I have a question because you work both ER and ICU. If you are an adrenaline junkie that's listening that wants to choose between the role of more excitement, would it be the <laughs> ER or the ICU? If you have oh, to choose man. one. So they are very different. <laughs> I think you can be, it's not so much adrenaline junkie as it is like, what is your pace? And so nurses that kind of tend towards liking everything to be organized and structured and planned out, kind of know what to expect, like the analytical type would love the ICU. They might find themselves very frustrated in the ER role. Um, on the contrary, nurses that are kind of messy and they're okay with chaos and they, they're okay with like moving forward without having all the information. They do really well in the ER and kind of get bogged down in the ICU, all the little details that you can track of in the ICU. And so I think both environments have their element of like adrenaline, if you want to say that. Um, the ICU is often like the same, the same, the same, oh my God. <laughs> and then there's this whole, you know, experience where it's a little bit chaotic, but then you try to get it back to where it's a little more controlled. The ER is just constantly flying at you. And it's not all adrenaline on the ER. You also get like the little kid with the broken bone and like the old man with chest pain times six months. Like it's not just constantly like gunshot wounds. Um, so I don't know if I can really answer that question perfectly, but I do feel like it's more of like a personality type, not so much a adrenaline junkie. Honestly, I would not identify as a adrenaline junkie myself. What I really love about both environments is the opportunity to be with patients and their families who are in crisis. It really takes a certain personality. So if I'm so focused on like the task and like, go, 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 epinephrine, CPR, all the, the things, and I forget that there's like a human in the bed or there's a family member that's watching all of this, then I'm not a good nurse. And so the opportunity to be in the ER on a patient's worst day of their life, to help the family walk through the experience of a critical care loved one. Um, that to me is what's rewarding, not so much like the cool stuff you get to do in each environment. Like, like I've had patients' chest open up and they're like massaging the heart and I've had gunshot wounds and I've had like all the crazy stuff, but my most memorable experiences as a nurse are the times when I had to hold grandma's hand as she you know, breathed her last breath or the times where I got to really support a family through a hard time. Um, that's that's what I really love about nursing. Yes, there's a little bit of adrenaline, but it's not what keeps me coming back to work every day. It's, it's the patient interactions and the connections that I get. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm in the same boat too. Like I've seen a lot of crazy stuff, working a little bit of trauma, working cardiac ICU. But like you said, like the most memorable, memorable stuff isn't like the craziness you deal with. It's like the patient connection that you have with the patient that's in yeah. this really difficult situation or, or even a family. But Sarah, can you walk us yeah. through the day of a rapid response nurse? Because usually when I come in, I'm a staff nurse. We work ICU. So we come in, we get a report. I look through the notes and then I start to go assess my patient. So what is, what is your day-to-day operations for, uh, for rapid response? All right. Well, first, it's different every day, but we respond to all of the rapid response calls, code blues, stroke alert, STEMI alert, sepsis alert, MTP, all the emergencies in the house. But if we're not responding to one of those, we still keep ourselves busy. So you might have heard of MUSE, Modified Early Warning Score. Every hospital has their own version of it, where when you take vital signs, it automatically gives you a score for the patient. So we have the ability as a rapid response team to pull the MUSE for every single floor and to kind of check on patients proactively. And I really love the proactive approach. The times when I can see the trend in vital signs, okay, the heart rate's going up and the blood pressure's kind of going down, or their white count, and we get to like get in there early and get interventions before the turn to our operative response, I love that. So if we're not doing anything else, we're probably pulling the MUSE and going to see patients proactively. We also do what's called nurse consults, which every hospital causes them different, but if a nurse has a concern about a patient and they don't quite want to like activate the whole rapid response team, they just kind of want a critical care nurse to come lay eyes on their patient, they'll call or text us and say, well, you just come look at my patient. I have this concern. We get a lot of those. We get actually as many of those as we do rapid response calls, but I love them because that nursing intuition is spot on almost every time. So the nurse says, I just don't like how he's breathing. Sure enough, both is going septic or his eyes just look weird. Yep. I think he's bleeding into his brain. Like sometimes the vital signs haven't quite indicated rapid response, but the patient presentation just doesn't feel right to the nurse. And that nurse concern, I follow it every time. I'm never like, oh, but the vital signs are fine. I'm, I'm always like, hey, if you're concerned and you know this patient's baseline, I'm going to trust that. So statistically, this is for our hospital, about 40% of those nurse concern calls and the nurse consults end up being upgraded to the PC or ICU. Sometimes it's something minor. We can just get some fluids on the patient. We can just, you know, get a quick CAT scan and rule out the worst case scenario. But very often it's something legit. And so I really love not just the adrenaline rapid response and the code blue, but also the let's get interventions before we actually have an emergency and prevent it from happening at all. Just a little more data because I love data. Um, there was a study recently published where they looked at all of the types of rapid response calls and narrow them down to about 10 categories of why nurses call rapid response. And seven of those 10 weren't even vital signs. Like you would think it would be high heart rate, low blood pressure, all the things, but a lot of them were just symptom or that gut feeling of, I just don't like how their belly looks. It looks different, or they're talking different than they were yesterday. So it's not always the vital signs that alerts us that the role of the bedside nurse is so, so important. And so my role as a rapid response nurse is to trust that, to come alongside them. And if it turns out not to be an emergency, then I can offer education about why I'm not concerned about the patient. But again, my approach would never be like, this isn't an emergency. Instead, I say, what's concerning you? Like, how can I support you? Let's get to the bottom of this. I'll call the doctor, I'll help to advocate. So every day is different. (laughs) Oh, we also start ultrasound guided IVs. So that's kind of like intermixed in between the emergencies that we attend. But um, on an average day, I'll do, maybe seven or eight rapid responses, a handful of ultrasound guided IVs, a handful of nurse consults, um, 
a code blue like every other day. It's not every day we have a code blue, which is good. That's how, <laughs> that's how it's supposed to be, right? Um, some more data, if you care to hear the data. Uh, when we started the rapid response team, our amount of rapid responses tripled, which is great because nurses are like, oh, there's a dedicated team for this. I can call them. I'm not bothering the ICU nurse. And when rapid responses tripled, code blues were cut in half. So that whole early intervention piece is so important. I'm so passionate about it, as you can tell, because I want to rescue the patient before they're hemodynamically unstable. I want to get to them and get interventions going before they crash, because that is better for their outcome. That's a very uh, great statistic that Code Blues got cut in half. So what is something that a staff nurse that's taking care of uh, their patient should be looking after or you believe is vital for early prevention when it comes to not calling the code and maybe some assessment findings you noticed or powerful questions you should be asking your patient to kind of get to know them a little bit deeper and the story what's happening versus just looking at vital signs? Good question. So one thing I encounter a lot is I'll ask the nurse, hey, so you know, what's going on with the patient? And they say, and I get it, I don't really know. I, I just got this patient today. I've only had them for two hours. They were sleeping at bedside shift reports. I don't even know their baseline. But I when I went to wake them up, I didn't like how they were acting. I don't, I don't know if this is normal for them, but I'm concerned about this. So I would say to any nurse out there, getting that baseline is, is so important. And I know you hate to wake patients up. It seems so mean, but for their sake, for their benefit, we got to wake patients up the second we meet them. Even if you don't have a time to do like the full assessment, just a quick baseline neurostatus to know what you're working with there. Um, so that if an emergency does happen, you can know, oh yeah, this is a big change. Or I don't know, maybe they're, maybe they never talk. Maybe they're always like this. Maybe they always breathe like that. I don't know. But if you'd actually done a baseline assessment, you would have that information. Um, and then the other thing I would say too is never be like uh, worried about sounding the alarm and looking stupid. <laughs> I would so much rather someone say, ah, oh, this is concerning and then end up not being a big deal than someone like waiting, 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 wait. Oh, and now the patient's coding. So I would, I guess the advice there would be trust your intuition because it's, it's probably right. Um, every once in a while, you know, it's like a brand new nurse and they're not sure if this is an emergency or not. And it's not, but most of the time that nursing intuition is, is spot on. Um, the other thing too, is just knowing like the basics as far as what to do when the patient is first crashing. So obviously you find your patient crashing, you're going to call rapid response. Okay. But like, what do you do in the three minutes that it takes for the team to get there? Like I have several flights of stairs and maybe a couple elevators to take to even get across the hospital to that emergency. You don't want to just be like twiddling your thumbs thinking, oh my gosh, I hope she gets here soon. There's things you can be doing. Um, so I would say for any patient you're concerned about, bring the crash cart close by. Even if you don't use it, just have it close by. Um, be comfortable with how to place the pads on the patient, like where they're located, how to connect it to the machine, how to assemble the BVM. Because sometimes it comes out of the package, you're like, oh, it's not like this in ACLS. Oh, you have to like put this piece together and how do you plug into the wall and how many liters do you put it to? So just like the basic stuff of how to respond to an emergency. Um, and then when you encounter that patient that just doesn't look right, we all know like the ABCs, but then people often like just totally forget them. <laughs> 
So just a reminder, the first thing I would look for is how is this patient's airway? Is it open? Is it patent? Is grandma like slumped down in the bed? I need to scoot her up so she can breathe better. Um, has the patient vomited? Have they aspirated? I need to like suction that airway out. Actually the patient cardiac arrest from grilled cheese. And we just had to get the grilled cheese out and we got ROSC. So make sure the airway is open. And the next is B for breathing. Again, we all know that one. How is the patient's breathing? And people get all anxious about it. Like, what do I even do for the breathing? Well, if they're breathing too fast, they're clearly asking for more oxygen. So put the non-rebreather mask on, turn it to 15 liters, give them more oxygen. They're breathing really fast, begging for more oxygen. But if you're watching their chest rise and fall and you're like, hmm, they just don't have much chest rise and fall. What is that, like four or five? So that patient doesn't just need oxygen in their nose, they also need breaths. And so feeling empowered to go ahead and put that BVM together and actually breathe for the patient. So that's airway and then breathing. Are they breathing too fast? Are they breathing too slow? And then intervening appropriately each one. I've seen a couple times when the patient's breathing like two breaths a minute and they just put a nasal cannula on the patient. But again, if you're not actually like, like sucking it in the patient, then that nasal cannula is not helpful. And then finally circulation. So sometimes it's obvious, like, do they have a pulse? No, they don't. I have to circulate for the patient. But sometimes they're talking to you, and I would say in that moment, make sure as the nurse that you have access to the circulatory system. So go ahead and check all your IVs, make sure they're working. I would rather know when I walk in the room that, hey, that IV is not working, than wait for the patient to cardiac arrest, and now I'm struggling to get an IV, having to do an IO on the patient. So let's make sure we have access to the bloodstream. So that's my big ones. Make sure you know where the crash card is. Make sure you know where like the code blue button is or the lever, whatever you have at your hospital. Make sure you know how to get the pads on the patient, how to put the BVM together. And then when you're responding to the patient, airway, breathing, circulation. I know it's like so basic, but people get, they freeze <laughs> and they forget about that basic stuff. And they're focusing on like, oh my gosh, what drugs did I get the patient last? Like, oh, what did I, what did I miss? Not thinking about what I need to do right now in this moment. So much to reflect on there. And I'm, I'm thinking about myself as a new nurse. The hardest part for me was, yes, getting comfortable with the communication or I should say with the equipment, where things are, how to put it on. And that BVM mask, that was one of my biggest hurdles as well, where I felt very uncomfortable pushing the, the bag mask and also getting comfortable and understanding that, hey, my patient needs some O2, the nasal cannula is not working. I feel like that was always a respiratory role when I was around in med surgeon having a patient, so I never was able to play with that equipment. And can you tell us a little bit about the dynamic when it comes to taking care of the patient? What, what do you do as, a, as like a team lead of the R team? What should be your other roles as far as the staff nurse and the dynamic of the whole entire situation? Yeah, it's really important to me that we don't just show up and be like, all right, we're here to take care of this mess, you know, we're the rapid response team, but to really approach it as if we are here to come alongside you and support you with our critical care background. And so, yes, we do kind of assume the role of team lead and like delegate what needs to happen, um, but not in a way that's going to make anyone feel stupid or like push them down, but rather to elevate it. And so as far as the team lead role, when I first walk in the room, I'm doing a quick scan of the room to make sure I have everything I need. Is suction set up? Do I have someone on compressions? Is there someone documenting? Is the crash chart close by? What's the, like, it's like, you, you'll probably see me scan the room, but I'm thinking about 30 things all at one time to make sure everything's taken care of. And then wherever I see a gap, I'm just assigning roles and making sure the role that I've assigned, they feel comfortable doing. So I would never want to give, say like a new grad, 
documentation. That's a really hard role if you've never done it before. I might put them on like compressions or pushing the drugs in, right? Something a little bit more simple. Um, so yeah, team lead, their, their job mainly is to make sure all the roles are filled and to kind of observe and make sure that it's all happening appropriately. So in our hospital, um, residents are the ones that respond to the rapid response calls, which is great, um, but they are also learning. And so I come to it with 18 years experience in critical care and ER and a master's degree. Emergencies are my jam. And a lot of them, even though they're physicians, they're still kind of learning like, is this sick? Should I be concerned about this? And sometimes I have to be really forceful and pointing out, this patient is diaphoretic. I cannot feel a radial pulse. I look at their legs, they are modeled. I'm very concerned about blah, blah. So just making sure that the, the team leader, the physician is hearing all of my concerns and kind of making sure that they're addressing all the things that are concerning to me, not just being like, well, let's see what the doctor says and sit back and let it happen. I, I really take a very uh, forward position in making sure all the roles are filled and making sure all the patient concerns are being addressed, either diagnostically or intervention wise. So Sarah, Does that answer your question? Yeah. So when a rapid response is called, is it just you and a physician that goes down to, to assess the, the rapid response or is there mourners that you bring along with? Yeah. So um, it's either one or two of us, depending on how many emergencies we have happening in the hospital at that moment. Um, so minimum one of us and then the ICU resident or nurse practitioner or PA and then a respiratory therapist comes, phlebotomy also comes. That's it for a rapid response. Um, when you call it code blue, it's a lot more people and the ICU attending also comes, but oftentimes it's just me and the ICU resident who it might be like their second year as a physician. Um, and so we work collaboratively to make sure that uh, everything is being addressed, looked into, investigated, treated uh, for that patient. And then we'll decide together, does this patient need to go somewhere else like ICU or maybe progressive care unit, or can we stabilize them to stay here? And again, we'll, we'll talk to that together. And Sarah, what are some common or universal questions that you would ask the nurse that's calling rapid response? That's a good question. Um, so we've done lots of education in, in our hospital. So the nurses are at this point, like prepared with that response. But when I first started, they were like, you know, they might be hiding in the corner somewhere, but now they kind of know, I really just want to know what the patient's here for. What led up to this event? Like in the last hour, what's happened? What drugs have they had? Have they gone to a certain procedure? Uh, and then how different is this from baseline? Because, you know, you might call a rapid response for unresponsiveness, but the patient is always nonverbal and unresponsive. Like, so I kind of want to know like what the baseline is. So that's, that's basically it. What's their baseline? What's happened the last hour? What are they in the hospital for? And then if there's any concern specifically that you have, tell me, don't be afraid to tell me what concern you have. Um, and so now I walk in the room and they're like, hey, Sarah, I'm a primary nurse. And here's what's going on with the patient. Here's what they're here for done. What I don't need to know is like, they had an appendectomy in 1987 and they also have an IV in the left AC and they have been in the hospital for six days and they had it like all the little details that don't pertain to this exact moment. We might get to those, but initially I just want to know what are they here for? What's happened? What concerns you? Um, and I love when the nurse already has a brand new set of vital signs. Like they walk in, they say, oh my gosh, they don't look good. And they call someone to get a new set of vital signs. So we have that to look at. Otherwise, that's the first thing I'm doing is I want vital signs to know how low is the blood pressure? How high is the heart rate? So basic, basic assessment, like basic history and then new set of vital signs. 
and I think going back to what you were saying earlier, the power of getting your baseline assessment. I think that's so powerful because having some experience in med surge, if it's your first time, go do everything you have to in that room, find out their neural status, just like you said, how they're breathing, just get to know them because having five or six patients, you become so busy, especially as a night shift nurse, you don't check up on them or maybe they're sleeping, the shift goes by and then it's early morning and I'm sure you get rapid responses at 6 a.m., which is a very common thing <laughs> anywhere we travel, nurse, because you were just so busy and I don't blame them. Sometimes we, it's like a stigma in the ICU. It's like, oh, 6 a.m., somebody's going to call rapid. It's um, um, one of those things. But yeah, baseline assessment. And kind of going back to where you're saying with team dynamics and things and getting a set of vital signs, what are some flaws that you see in the commonality of your work that could be prevented or could lead to a better rapid response? You mean with team dynamics or with like nursing? Just in general, maybe nursing, yeah. Some great tips that you could give nurses to not do that. For example, you just mentioned getting a set of vital signs before you come in that's powerful for you. Is there anything else that could lead to a better rapid response from that staff nurse that's calling the rapid? I think those are the main things, honestly. Just knowing where your equipment is and knowing how to activate an emergency and being prepared with a quick summary of what happened to the patient, um, getting a blood sugar if it's relevant. Like if you're going to call a stroke alert, have taken a blood sugar because very often it's just the blood sugar is 36 and we you can fix that with some sugar rather than like a CAT scan and all the things. Um, I guess I would say too, just like not being afraid to, to share your concern. I feel like there's so many nurses are afraid that they're going to say the wrong thing or that what concern they have is not going to be concerning to me. Spot it out. Like I, I want to hear all of it. Um, a lot of times we'll have even like the nurse tech, they'll say, Hey Sarah, just so you know, like this is not how this patient acts. I've had her three days now and this is not how she acts. And so thank you nurse tech that for knowing this patient, because the nurse just got them two hours ago, your knowledge about their baseline or whatever your gut concern is that, that is really, really important to share. But as far as like things that people do wrong, I feel like for the most part, nurses do the right thing. The biggest hurdle is not speaking up when they should, not advocating whenever they are really concerned um, for fear that they'll look stupid. But I just wanna remind nurses like, the doctors, they ain't your boss. So if they disagree with you, it's not going to affect your paycheck. It's not going to affect your job status. Like we are working collaboratively. So it's your job to advocate for the patient and it's their job to trust your concern and look into it. So I'm kind of like, I, I don't really, care. I don't really care if the doctor sees me as annoying or abrasive or um, whatever, whatever they might, whatever adjective they might describe me. I'm like, I, I don't do this job for you. I do this job for the patient. And so just feeling empowered to, to speak up whenever you're concerned about your patient. And honestly, a lot of times we'll get calls where the nurse says, I called the doctor and they said, it's fine, but this doesn't seem fine to me. And so I see the patient, I'm like, nope, you are right. You are absolutely right. This is not fine. So then I call the doctor and I say the exact same thing they probably already said, but because I'm the rapid response nurse, doctor's like, oh, what? Oh, they're tachycardic? Oh my goodness. <laughs> Yes, the nurse already told you this, but I don't know if I'm able to use more specific terms. So like rather than saying, oh, the patient's not, they're breathing weird. I would say the patient's using accessory muscles, their tripod position, they look a little pale, a little diaphoretic, their respiratory rate is 40. Oh, that's another one. <laughs> that, is a, that is an error I see a lot. Is respiratory rate, <laughs> I can talk about, 
pardon me while I get in my soapbox. I feel like respiratory rates are documented erroneously a lot of the time. I'll see the patient's vital signs and it says respiratory rate of 16 for like five days. But then I go see the patient and they're clearly breathing 45 times a minute. I'm like, there's no way they went from 16 to 45 in 10 minutes, unless something drastic happened. But usually patients kind of work up to that. And so I want to remind nurses that one of the first indicators of patients getting sick is that respiratory rate. They, the body tries to compensate. When you're acidotic, the body's going to try to blow off that CO2. And it might not be that they have a respiratory problem, but the respiratory system is what's activated to start compensating for that problem. So nurses that actually take the time to watch the chest rise and fall, man, they can gather so much data from that. Not just a rate like, oh, it's 35, but also like, what is their worker breathing? Are they using accessory muscles? And what is the pattern of their breathing? Are they having big pauses? Are they breathing shallow breaths? Like there's so much data you can get to figure out, is this a neuro problem? Is this a respiratory problem? Is this a COPD? Like there's so much you can get just from watching the chest. But when you just write, 14 or 16 or 18 every single time, you miss the opportunity to really look into what's happening to your patient. So I guess that would be the one that I see a lot is respiratory rates that are documented in a way that I know, I know that's not what it was. Yeah, I think all nurses, well, at least majority of nurses are probably guilty of doing that. Even myself, I do it sometimes. Sometimes the respiratory rate doesn't carry over to the, from the monitor, so I just peek over there. You know, grandma's breathing. She's breathing pretty fine. It looks, looks normal to me, so I'm just going to type in the, the 16. But, sir, I have, I have another question for you. This is regarding dealing with a nurse that's really stressed out or maybe freaking out about the situation because even the smartest nurse can freak out in emergency situations. So has there been a situation where you're called to rapid response and a nurse is freaking out and you kind of had a helper calm down and relax because now you have the deteriorating patient and you had this nurse freaking out so it's almost like having two yes. patients at the same time how do you deal <laughs> yes. with how do you deal with that and how can nurses prevent themselves from freaking out like that that is such a great question all right so i'm going to go back a little bit to pathophysiology we all know about the sympathetic nervous system right it's the whole like fight flight or freeze that your body does to help you handle an emergency and so when the sns is activated epinephrine, norepinephrine release, that makes your heart squeeze harder, your blood vessels kind of clamp down, your blood pressure goes up, your heart rate goes up, your vision actually gets better, you are physically stronger, like all these things kick in to help you in an emergency. Uh, I think the best example that I've heard is what you would do if you were to see a bear. So like if I saw a bear, I would either fight the bear or I would run from the bear or I would drop down to be still and act like nothing was happening, hopefully the bear would walk away. So fight, flight or freeze. And what's interesting is the same thing happens actually when your patient's having an emergency. Your body says, oh my gosh, there's an emergency. Fly, fight, flight, or freeze. And everyone chooses a different one. And it's not like a conscious, I choose this one today. Your body chooses it for you. And so either I've seen nurses freeze, like literally they can't move, they can't think, they can't remember what the patient's here for. They're like shaking and breaking out in hives and like you can tell they're hyperventilating. That's their body's response to stress, and it's normal. There's nothing wrong with them. That's what their body does in stress. Other nurses I've seen like fight, like, like literally they get really aggressive and their voice gets louder and they're like really irritated it seems like. Again, I see this a lot with like rapid response nurses or critical care nurses. They're like, they recognize an emergency and they get really aggressive because that is their body's sympathetic nervous system activating. Again, totally normal. Doesn't have to be that way, but totally normal. And then um, the last one is flight. I don't see this as much, but every once in a while, I'll be like, where's where's the primary? Has anyone seen the primary nurse? 
and they're like in the bathroom or they're three doors down checking out another game game. Like they're not even like in the emergency because they physically run away from it. So all of those responses are normal. I want to start with that. But I think what's important for nurses to learn is that you could actually kind of retrain those neuro pathways of how to respond to an emergency. You don't have to just do the same thing and be freaked out every single time. You can kind of learn to um, be mindful of what your body's doing and like channel that SNS to help you. So I was not always the Sarah that you're meeting today. I used to be uh, much more, uh, what's the word? Like people pleaser, concerned about what people thought about me. Um, public speaking was like not my forte at all, but I really wanted to be good at it. And so oftentimes I would get up to do whatever thing I had to do and I would feel my heart racing and I felt like nauseous in my stomach and my hands got all sweaty and I feel like I couldn't catch my breath. And I would say, oh my gosh, I can't do this. I, I can't do this right now. I've, I'm too short of breath. My heart's racing too much. I can't do that. I feel nauseous. I can't do this. But I had to learn like, okay, Sarah, whenever all those things are happening inside of you, that's actually your sympathetic nervous system kicking in to help you. So that nausea you feel, that's the gut shunting blood away from the gut towards the vital organs, right? That heart racing, yep, your heart is racing, so you have increased cardiac output. You will be stronger, sharper, faster. So I just tell myself, like, when I feel that, okay, it's go time. I'm about to be my best Sarah, the best version of Sarah right now. Yes, I have this sensation in my chest, but that's because my body is preparing me to handle an emergency. It's not an emergency life threat to me like a bear, it's a life threat to my patient and therefore I need the SNS to help me with that. And so in the moment of the nurse freaking out and I'm like, well, let's talk about the sympathetic nervous system. I would never do that then, but I will definitely like pull them aside afterwards and kind of talk through that, let them know that it's normal to feel that. And so I guess my encouragement to nurses is when you feel that sensation, when you're scared for your patient and your body is going into fight, flight or freeze, whatever it chooses, that's okay. Don't be upset with your body. It's actually there to help you. And so I've had to kind of retrain myself over the years. Okay. When I feel this, I'm about to be able to notice more things than I would usually notice in the patient. Those little changes in their, um, their assessment findings, I'll pick up on them even better now because of my sympathetic nervous system. My, my little muscles here, they're going to be way stronger than normal because I have epinephrine and norepinephrine. So I can do a full two minutes of CPR. I can get that patient up off the ground. I will be faster to run six flights of stairs to get to the emergency. So it, it's definitely a shift and it's not like a split second decision and now I'm there. It takes time to kind of retrain those neural pathways to kind of approach it that way. And then the other little caveat I like to throw in there is um, trauma also really affects nurses' response to um, emergencies. So if a nurse has experienced trauma in their life, especially if it was repeated trauma, and again, the nursing workforce is a lot of females and the statistics about how many females have been raped or abused or molested is really, really high. So that's a lot of our coworkers that have been in a fight, flight, or freeze situation. And your body with repeated trauma kind of learns a certain way to respond. And whatever way your body chooses to respond, that's what it chose to do in that moment, that's what I thought was best for you. So if you froze for so many years in response to whatever trauma, that's gonna be your response when your patient's having an emergency as well. And so I wanna remind nurses to be gracious with themselves. If you freeze, that's okay. You're not a bad nurse. You're a really good nurse that really cares about this patient and recognizes the emergency. But you do have to take the effort to be like, okay, 
I'm feeling this. I'm feeling this tachycardia. I'm feeling my hands sweating. I feel short of breath. What is happening right now? It's not incapacitating me. It's not hindering me. I'm actually about to be the best nurse for this patient. I, I, am, I am given more strength, more ability for this patient in this moment. And kind of like training yourself to, to think of it that way. Does that make sense? So yeah. I, I definitely have had lots of conversations with the nurses who are apologizing. Oh, Sarah, I'm so sorry. I just totally forgot everything I was supposed to do. I'm like, that's okay. That it takes time to learn to be mindful of what your body's doing and to recognize it as a good thing rather than a hindrance. Yeah, I'm really, really passionate about that one. Yeah, that's very powerful because the SENA system takes over. And just like you said, we become unconscious and we choose one of these three ways to respond. Mm -hmm. And we don't understand that we could detach ourselves from these physical sensations, but we get so tied up on mm -hmm. the feelings and emotions of the situation where we're just feeling through that instead of being rational and analytical, getting like, okay, hey, what's going on here? What can I do in this situation versus just freezing? Have you noticed tools in your life that you use to help you get out of this CNS uh, response? Is it maybe meditating or is it breathing? Have you noticed a tool that worked great for you? I have a hard time with meditating. <laughs> I get easily distracted, to be honest with you. Um, but one thing I do, every time I'm running into an emergency, I, I personally say a prayer. And it's the same one every time. God, give me the strength that this patient needs. Give me the wisdom to know how to respond. Give me the calm demeanor to help lead this team. Give me what I need in this moment to help this patient. Um, it's something I literally pray daily and have been doing for so many years. So I guess it's kind of like a meditative thing. Um, just recognizing that it's not just about me and what I'm feeling. It's how can I use what I'm feeling to help someone else? But yeah, it was just like a retraining of those neural pathways over the years to recognize it as good and to interpret it as good rather than as something negative. And I think that most people, you know, when there's an emergency and they feel those things, it's associated with negativity. But in the nursing world, when there's an emergency and you can tap into that SNS, it's actually a positive thing. Um, so I have the, the best technique for that, but that's, that's what's worked for me. Um, I think for other nurses, a meditation would be a great thing to do, to think, maybe think back to a time they had an emergency and really process that moment and allow themselves to heal from it or to move past it rather than just feeling like, oh, it went terrible and I'm, I'm terrible, but to really like go revisit it again and, um, and, and work through it. Mm -hmm. You mentioned before a little bit about intuition and with intuition comes, comes confidence. And I know when I was a younger nurse, I had the right intuition, but a lot of times I would not not tell people what's going on and I would go home and I would come back next shift and I'd be like, oh, what happened to Steve? He's, and it's like, oh, his bowel perf. And I was like, God damn, I knew it. I knew he was a little more distended. I should have said something, but I didn't. So it ha kept happening to me. And it, kind of how I got over that is just by asking small questions. I, I learned to ask for like a second opinion about my peers. So I would say, hey, does Steve's admin look a little bit more distended? Does it feel firm to you? And then I would get that reinforced, like, yeah, it does feel a little more distended. It does feel kind of firm. What do you think is going on? And that's how I was able to learn confidence. So my question is to you is how are you able to build confidence? And also, how can you help somebody else build confidence? Because when I used to orientate new nurses on the unit, uh, I could tell which nurse was thinking about something but, but wasn't asking. So a lot of times I could tell by their facial expressions. And I would go up to them and ask, like, hey, what's going on with your patient? 
and then that would solicit them having to ask me, me a question or tell me something that, that they're thinking about. So those are two ways that I build confidence and another way was that I build confidence in other people. So how did you go about building confidence for yourself and how can you build confidence for others? That's good. So as far as for myself, it just took time. I mean, my first year of nursing, that was probably like the main thing that I acquired was learning that what I felt was probably right. There was a lot of times when I second guessed myself because I felt like something was wrong, but then the vital signs were perfect. Or I was concerned, but then the, the doctor said it was fine. But then I would learn three hours later, oh, you're right, the patient's bowel perf. That, that's that intuition, that feeling that I had. That's because they were about to perf their gut. So I feel like it just time kind of helped me. The other thing too is I ask a lot of questions. And so the experienced nurses on my floor, if I heard them talking about a story or Whatever they, I would ask them questions about their patients. How did you know this? How did you know this? What concerned you about that? How did you know do that? Like, so many questions. So then I'm not only learning from my experience, but I'm also gathering all the knowledge from all of their experiences. So again, I asking lots of questions, you kind of start to put pieces together. Like, okay, these three symptoms together equals bad outcome. Okay, this vital sign with this vital sign equals this for the patient. You kind of like learn to, to put those together. And then the, the more times you see a pale diaphoretic patient that ends up coding, you're like, oh, pale and diaphoretic. I should be concerned about that. That should make me concerned. Or the more times you pull out the covers and see modeled, you're like, oh, that, that modeling, that means they're about to code. Like whatever, you kind of learn over time to make connections in your brain with this plus this equals unstable. So yeah, time and asking lots of questions is really how I did that. There's no magic, like turn on the intuition switch and <laughs> follow it. But I kind of built confidence in myself learning that, oh, I was right. Oh, I was right about that too. I was right about that too. Lots of times. The other one, as far as building other people's confidence, um, we get lots of those calls of nurses like, hey, Sarah, what do you think about this? Or what do you think about their belly? What do you think about their, the way they're looking or the way they're breathing is? They're, they're looking to see, is my intuition right or am I way off the deep end there? Um, and one thing that I've found is by asking why questions, it puts people on the defensive. So I'm like, well, why'd you do this? Well, why are you concerned about that? Well, why, why do you think that's a bad thing? Immediately like, oh, well, um, I, don't, I didn't know that. I, I, people get defensive when you say why. But just like you said, what's going on with your patient? That's perfect. Or I'll say, what concern do you have for your patient? Or tell me about your patient or anything that opens the door to conversation. But if you start with the why, it automatically shuts people down. And so when I go to rapid responses, I just try really hard to get there before the doctors because they always say, why did you call a rapid response? And the nurse is like, uh, well, should I have called a rapid response? Is this, I don't know, is this an emergency? They can tell them getting kind of anxious about the why question. But by asking the same question without the why, by saying, tell me about your patient, tell me what's concerning you today. Oh yeah, they'll tell you, they, they're concerned. That's why they called in the first place. So I feel like eliminating the why is one way to do that. And then sometimes I know the answer. Like I see the situation with the patient. I know exactly what's wrong, but I'll ask questions in a way that gives them a chance to come to the conclusion themselves. You know what I'm saying? So I'll say like, okay, so we've already checked a blood sugar and it was normal, very good. So now I'm, I'm kind of wondering, what was their baseline? Like, why, how do they usually talk with you? Okay, and it's different now? Do you notice any change left side or right side? Okay, yeah, look at that, you're right. The left side is much weaker. Whatever, I'll ask questions to like get them to that point, whatever it might be, um, so that they can be like, oh, they make the connection themselves. 
or I'll think out loud. I'll say, all right, so when a patient has altered mental status, the first thing I'm thinking about is what's their blood pressure? How, how was their blood pressure? Okay, so it's not the blood pressure. The next thing I'm thinking about is, and I'll like, I'll basically walk them through the things that take me this long to think through. I'll do it step by step by step. And you can see them be like, oh, that's what it is. Oh my gosh, we should check for that. And it's really, it's cool to me. I would rather empower another nurse to figure it out and feel confident they did than to be like, oh, this, done. That doesn't make me feel any better about myself. It doesn't, I think a lot of people assume like they will feel more awesome if they can just be like, mic drop, done. But for me, a better day is when I in, instilled in another nurse the confidence and the competence to recognize the patient's decline themselves than to just be like, oh, it's this, we need to do that. That, that doesn't help anybody. I, I'd rather just give them the time to figure it out. So that's kind of how I do it. Ask questions. It's called Socratic questioning. If you, if you think about like an educator, it's where you're asking questions to, for them to kind of figure it out themselves. That's very powerful, Sarah. And I like how you mentioned that where you're asking open-ended questions to help them build the confidence. So that's why you took the role of being an educator because through education, you're empowering that nurse versus we all know, we all know that old-fashioned nurse that comes in that's just kind of grumpy and is a straight shooter, which is great. She knows what she's good at and what she can do, but it kind of leaves you to becoming defensive when you're asking that why question. And just like you said, maybe because of our trauma as in the female dominant healthcare, whatever it is, we shut down and we take it so personal where we become defensive and then we just start losing our train of thought versus the open-ended questions being having a calm environment and building the data, just like you said, to figure out what's going on and then they feel empowered. So it's amazing that that yeah. was your perspective on that role. Yeah, and, and just to add to that a little bit more, my approachability today affects future patients. So if I come off as like, why would you do that? Or that's stupid, or that's not an emergency. That means for future patients, they're gonna question, should I call Sarah? I don't, want, I don't know if I wanna call Sarah. But if they know, oh, Sarah's gonna come alongside me and support me and help me work through this, then they're gonna call me for the future patients. And rather than waiting for the patient's vital signs to say, oh my God, it's an emergency, they'll call me when the patient's just starting to decline and we can intervene more effectively. So I really stress this with my team and it is the culture of my team is that no matter what, we are not making anyone feel stupid. If there's some education needs to be done, we'll do it in a way that's like, how can I support you? How can I build you up? Not how can I tear you down and tell you what you've done wrong? Because that does not help patients. It does not help our profession. Um, and honestly, it doesn't make you feel any better either. So I'm, I'm all about the approachable, warm way to embrace newer nurses and even experienced nurses, not just the newer ones. We all have challenges and you know, sick patients. But yeah, it's, it's all about the, the culture that makes a big difference. And Sarah, this is kind of a random question, but the current hospital that I'm working for, they're trying to apply for magnet status. Do you work in like a magnet status uh, facility? I have in the past. The okay. one I'm at now is not a magnet hospital. Were you an educator in that magnet uh, facility or no? Mm -hmm. No. Okay. Yeah. Well, maybe you could touch upon this either way because I was just curious, like, what are the education requirements for magnet status? Do you know anything about that? For rapid response? Uh, like just to get... Because I know with mag, and correct me if I'm wrong, for magnet status, you have to reach certain milestones, you could say, and you have to have certain things in, in place. And is that the same thing for the education part, uh, the, the education department for nurses? Or is that just uh, like a more uh, of a services thing? Here's what I know about magnet. And again, I'm not the expert to be speaking on this at all. But to be magnet status, you have to have X percentage of nurses with their BSN 
an X percentage of nurses with their certification and their specialty. And so magnet hospitals really push their nurses to get that certification. Um, but that's really all that I know. I don't know if they have certain requirements for like um, yearly competencies. I, I don't actually, I can't really speak to that. I don't feel like my, the education that was offered to me was like any better or, or different when I worked at a magnet hospital versus at the hospital I'm at now, just that um, they required that I have that uh, CCRN or CEM when I worked at the other hospital. And I know with your passion with rapid response, you decided to make a course. So what is it and what, what made you do it? Sure. So first of all, I love teaching and my current role, I'm not the educator. I'm the rapid response team supervisor, but even though it's not on my badge, it's always in my blood. Like I love teaching. And so that's actually why I started the podcast in the first place as an outlet to still um, educate nurses to get, help them feel empowered and competent and responding to emergencies. So um, on my podcast, every episode is like an actual case I went to and I break down the pathophysiology and the pharmacology about that particular patient. I was like, man, I should make this into a course. <laughs> so originally I started building this big robust course and it was like hours and hours long. Like I'm never going to finish this thing. So I kind of took a step back and I made just like a basic one hour introductory course about a lot of the stuff we talked about today, but a little more in depth about how I approach emergencies. You know, nursing school, they really just teach you how to pass the NCLEX, but, and you can do a full head to toe assessment, like checking their reflex. I mean, you can do all that from thank you nursing school. But what about when you don't know if the patient's stable or unstable? Or like, what's the first thing you look for? Do you, you go straight to bowel sounds? Do you go straight for like, of all the things to assess, what do you check for first? And so I just wanted nurses to know like, kind of what I've learned over the years, 18 years experience, what is my priority? What, what am I looking for when I approach a patient? How am I ruling things out? What is my, um, like the initial 20 seconds, what am I doing to like figure out what's wrong with the patient? How do I determine if they're stable or unstable? So this course, it, it really just kind of breaks that down. Um, and I talk a little bit like some case studies to kind of walk through my thinking process because it's, it's pretty universal. It works for just about every single patient. So just the initial steps for responding to a patient. And then, so I, I just released it literally like two weeks ago. <laughs> it hasn't been out for that long. And then I'm still in the process of building that big robust course. And whenever it's done, I'll release that one too. But I just wanted to get something out there just for nurses gonna be like, okay, I passed nursing school, great. I'm a nurse, great. I can do the task, I can pass the drugs, I can document, but like, what about the times when the patient's crashing? What do I need to do? And I feel like this course answers that question. So nurses are like, okay, I know what I'm looking for. I know what I'm checking for. I know what's the priority. I know what I don't need to do right now. And I know what I need to focus on for this patient. So that's kind of what the course is. Yeah, it's really beneficial. I wish I wish I would have would have had that when I was uh, fresh Me out too. of school. I wish I would have had that. Yeah, because I know when, when I first got hired to the cardiac ICU, uh, when I used to work in, in Illinois, my first question was to my chargers was, hey, what do I do in an emergency situation? What do I do when patients crashing? And what he told me was was like there's multiple things you can do but trust me i'm not gonna go over them all with you right now but just trust me when you're in a situation we're gonna help you because it's one of those things where you just have to go through the motions to to act to actually learn but now that you have a physical course or, or a, a book or something to learn off of it's very very beneficial because i was going into it basically just like going into an like unknown place. Yeah, you, I'm, I'm literally yeah. winging it. I'm winging it because I'm not going to know what to do and I'm going to hope my charge nurse is there that I, that I spoke to that is going to know what know what to do because I'm not going to have any idea. And it would be good to at least know 
the fundamentals or, or like the basics. We, we all kind of remember ABCs from nursing school, but do we really know ABCs from nursing school? No, we just really know about ABCs on an exam portion, but not really ABCs when it comes to real life. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, it really is all the things that I wish someone would have set me down and been like, okay, first look at this, and then this, and then this is the priority. I'm like, oh, it took years for it all to kind of click in and be like, oh, and that's how we get to the conclusion that this patient is unstable. Oh, that's how I can rule out this as a worst case scenario. So I, I really hope that it helps nurses and their patients, obviously, which is why, why I put it out there. Where can people find this course? It is www. Uh, rapidresponseandrescue.com. One last question that we like to ask our guests. So if you had the opportunity to have a cup of coffee with anybody one last time, who would it be and why? Oh man, that's an easy one. My mom. So my mom passed when I was nine and she was a really, really good mom, but I would love to have the opportunity to talk with her again and to tell her all about the things my life has encountered and to get her wisdom on stuff and just to just to hear her voice again would be such a privilege. Um, I don't even drink coffee, but I would I would have coffee with her just for the opportunity to talk with her again. That's probably mine. That's awesome. And Sarah, where can people find you? You have your own podcast. You have a social media profile. Where can people go to find out more about Sarah? Sure. So I have the podcast. It's called Rapid Response RN, and it's on every podcast platform. Um, and then I have my Instagram profile, which is the Rapid Response RN, and uh, I've just started building a Facebook page, but it's also going to be Sarah Lorenzini on Facebook. Shouldn't be too hard to find. Uh, and then the course is uh, rapidresponseandrescue.com. Awesome, Sarah. Thank you so much for your time and all the knowledge that you have in rapid response to healthcare and able to provide so much knowledge for our listeners and for anybody in the future. And yeah, maybe we'll have you on again. Thank you for your time. I'd love to. It was good talking with you guys. Thank you so much. Thank you, Sarah. Sarah. Well, that's it for today's episode. If you like this podcast, I'd love to hear from you. You can shoot me an email with questions or comments, and it would mean so much if you could take a moment to write a review on iTunes, as this helps more listeners find this podcast. Thanks for listening, and I hope you learned something that will save a life. Remember, nursing is a team sport, so trust your intuition and don't give up advocating until you are confident you've done what's right by your patient. You've been listening to the Rapid Response RN Podcast. The views and opinions expressed on this show are that of Sarah Lorenzini and hers alone. They are not intended as medical advice and should not take the place of your institution's policies or procedures. Evidence-based practice is ever-changing, and your patient's care should reflect the current best practice. If you want to get in contact with Sarah, you can find her at rapidresponsermpodcast at gmail.com or on the Rapid Response RM Podcast Facebook page, as well as the podcast website, rapidresponserm.com.